From New York City, welcome to the OpenFin MVP podcast. I'm your host, Chuck Dorr. And what's particularly fascinating about the Atari 2600 is it had precious little memory. And typically, the, the way that you render to screen is you have video RAM, you have memory which is mapped directly to the screen. You set you set a byte there that dictates the color of a particular pixel, for example. The Atari 2600 didn't have enough memory to have video RAM. So what happened was the developers would update registers which would change the color as, as the cathode ray tube, the, the TV, scanned from line to line, which is a fascinating idea. And it, it, I, I can't imagine what it's like to actually have to performance optimize and create gains on that system. That was Colin Eberhardt, technology director of Scott Logic. Scott Logic prides itself on delivering pragmatic solutions to complex software challenges. Colin joins me today to talk about the desktop ecosystem, WebAssembly, and of course, the Atari 2600. Welcome, Colin. Hi, Chuck. Maybe to kick off here, we can talk a little bit about what you've been up to lately. Are you faring well in these times of isolation, this sort of re-lockdown and whatnot? Yeah, well, thanks for asking. I think we're all in a similar situation here, really. In the UK, similar to yourselves, we officially locked down, what was it, six months ago now. There was a bit of an easing, but things are getting restricted once again. So at Scott Logic, we've all been working from home for, for the past six months, and we'll continue to do that for, for the foreseeable future. So you're doing well. I mean, we're enjoying the highs and lows, definitely enjoying being home with the children more. Less Less enjoyable is just not meeting people, meeting people like yourself, meeting our clients face-to-face. The, the interactions aren't quite what they used to be, but, you know, it's it swings and roundabouts. Yeah, we're gearing up for our first virtual FinJS. Uh, both you and others at Scott Logic have done some really interactive and cool presentations at FinJS. That in-person stuff, it's really hard to replicate. We're excited about what an online FinJS looks like it, it's turning a little bit more conference than it is. You know, FinJS has always been a little networking heavy. I mean, we do content, but it's pretty compact. We're looking forward to it. That's coming up in November. I think I've been to every single FinJS in London, a few in New York, and it's a great event. But to your point, the talks are great. We enjoy giving talks, but it's the networking. It's the getting out and meeting people. It's a fun event. Yeah. And also, in our pre-talk here, I, I didn't realize that you had four kids. I feel like maybe we talked about it, but we maybe had drinks in hand at the time, so filed it straight into Dev Null. I've got four kids as well, and it's nuts trying to do these podcasts, keeping the, the sound out in the background, but we're doing our best here, right? We are indeed, and I must admit, it's quite funny. It's that kind of voyeurism of getting to, to look at the insides of everyone's houses. It's quite funny. There have been a few times where I've gone, oh, I quite like the look of your wallpaper there. Where, where did you get that? Or my cat's make an appearance in meetings. It's it's also quite interesting having client meetings. It You'll talk to some really quite senior people who are in quite powerful positions within our client base. It, it humanizes them a bit more to see that quite often they'll be sat in a bit of a makeshift study in, in the corner of their living room as well. You might think they'll be in a plush off home office, but we're really all, all the same at the end of the day. The great equalizer. It, it is, it is. So let's get into some meat here. Going back, I think maybe the tail end of June or July, Scott Logic did a webinar series where you did a, uh, a sort of headliner and have a white paper out about it titled Building an Integrated Desktop Application Ecosystem for Finance. 
it's a great white paper. I, I recommend everyone have a quick look at it. Can you maybe hit a couple of the big points that you got out of that investigation? Sure. We've been working with building front-end applications on desktop or financial services desktop for many, many years uh, with, with a, a wide range of clients. And you do see the same challenges cropping up again and again. Most of our clients have got numerous desktop applications, not, not tens, but hundreds of applications written in a wide range of technologies. And a, a great many of them would acknowledge that those technologies are a legacy, yet those are the front-end systems that keep the banks in business. They, they keep them ticking over. So they have a bit of a challenge on their hands. They, they want to improve them, modernize them. And I don't just mean make them look prettier. They want them to become more efficient. They want to consolidate the duplication between these different applications. They want them to connect together. However, often they don't have a huge budget, especially for the internal-facing applications. A, a colleague of mine quite often makes the observation that your external clients pay you to use your, your systems, so they better be good, whereas your staff, you pay them to use your systems so they can put up with it. And there is a certain element of truth to that. So modernizing your, your desktop application estate is, is a real challenge. So with the white paper, we wanted to sort of talk about the inhibitors, these, these challenges that are, are making it hard to, to move on. But also we wanted to talk about the, the vision for the future, where you're not sort of shackled by, by this legacy, where your workflows are not brittle, involving rekeying of information, where it's a bit like the, the move to microservices, where you have much smaller components that you can plug together that, that work in a kind of cohesive ecosystem. Again, I, I'm, it's, it's a vision that you guys share as well. Whereas as a consultancy, we're not selling a particular product that will achieve a goal. We're helping them come up with a strategy that allows them to achieve that goal. And your products are certainly part of that strategy. But as you know yourself, it's it's not a case if you buy a product and your problems are solved. You need to work out the, the strategic steps, the evolutionary steps that, that allow you to achieve that goal. That's the real thrust of the white paper. You kind of brought up an interesting point in there around how when we're developing applications for internal audiences, the budgets tend to be tight, right? Yeah. Another trend that we're seeing is that increasingly a lot of those components are not actually being built custom anymore, right? But people are bringing in software from outside. Is that a trend that you're seeing as well? Absolutely. And even though we're, we're a consultancy, we write lines of code. At the same time, our mentality is if you if you can find something suitable, buy it, don't build it. If it fits your requirements, if the licensing costs are right, then do that. And then use the budget that you might have used to, to, to build a bespoke version for something else, for something where you can genuinely add value. Don't, don't reinvent the wheel. Uh, so again, this is why I think when our clients are going on this journey, they need to think about it strategically. They, they need to work out where they want to go. They need to work out the, the products that, that fit with that. And they, they also need to sometimes make some compromises along the way as well. A good migration strategy unlocks value early on. It gives you a return on investment early on. So I think migrating away from the sort of legacy desktop net technologies, it's it's not a technology problem. It's it's a, a strategy problem. Right, right. As those different components, you brought up microservices as a concept. And a lot of what we see happening on the desktop is those microservices are kind of turning into micro apps, right? And the need for integration, therefore, kind of goes up. And 
you've got people selecting these best of breed solutions for smaller pieces, but then you're in a sort of swivel chair, copy paste integration, brittle processes. What are some of the techniques that you guys are seeing people use to attack those kinds of challenges? Yeah. And, and again, this is where the strategy part comes in because that yeah. can be really quite a challenging problem. One thing I'd point out is that whilst we're talking about desktop technologies, we shouldn't forget that it's important to integrate on the server side as well. If you can integrate on the server side, oftentimes that's more robust and a more seamless way of getting things to communicate with each other. I'm overgeneralizing a little bit. There are certainly things that you can and you should integrate on the desktop. Also, I guess, a sort of counter argument, I do think we have to be careful not to go too far the other way. If you present a user with a a whole mixed bag of lots and lots of little applications, you're kind of making them responsible for, for assembling their own application. And oftentimes, users don't want or need that. We've built a number of large front-end applications where we've created some really quite flexible workspace systems to allow the users to assemble things in, in the way that, that's just right for them. Then through user research, we found out that no one really does that. Uh, it's it's configured <laughs> once by someone else. They learn that pattern and they, they live with it. So I know I'm kind of, to a certain extent, dodging your question because whilst I'm, I'm very much a technologist at heart, I've been around technology long enough to, to understand that you've, you've got to, I, I know it's a cliche, you really do have to consider your users and think about your users first before you start applying technology to them. Generally speaking, you can find a technology solution to anything, especially with JavaScript. JavaScript can do anything. <laughs> but uh, you really do have to think about whether it's the right solution for the user. Right. UX is just so, so important. I think we've all been trained in our home lives now to kind of expect really great UX. And, you know, sometimes when you bring together a collection of different platforms, internal, external, it's a bit of a dog's breakfast kind of a situation. There's no meaningful way to get out of that without actually, like you're saying, kind of taking a step back and trying to overlay the, the overall strategy of what you're trying to achieve on top of it. Yeah, I, I had a really great conversation with one of our UX designers just the other week, and he had landed on a new project with a new client. And unfortunately, he'd been involved a little bit too late in the process to really make an impact. He'd, he'd certainly had an impact in terms of I'd say fine-tuning the UX, but one of the things that we find through educating our, our clients is UX is something that should be considered very much at the beginning of the process because correct UX can not only make it more pleasurable to use, to use, it can make it more efficient. You can optimize what you're building. You can build less and deliver more if you get the UX right. So I'm not a UX expert, but I have a, a real appreciation for the power of UX, and I do let them do their work first before we come in and actually start writing the code. Totally makes sense. Now, maybe talking a little bit more about legacy migration, right? And yeah. I'm going to use that as a transition straight into the heart of one of the things that you care a lot about, WebAssembly. Now, I know it's not quite a migration story yet on the client side for applications, but certainly on the server side for business logic, it seems like we're kind of headed in that direction. You published a, a book called What is WebAssembly, published by O'Reilly earlier yeah. this year. Can you give us a little sense of what's happening with legacy migration around WebAssembly? And once you tell me that that's not what it's for, you can tell me what it is for. That's a tricky question because part of me says, 
no, that's not what it's for. But also the initial WebAssembly MVP was very much about migration. So I guess to backtrack on that a little bit. So WebAssembly is a very new W3C standard. The sort of founding or formation group from WebAssembly only started meeting in, what was it? 2016, I think. And, And the first MVP release was in 2018. So it's a very new technology. And, and the whole idea with WebAssembly was to, to create a fundamentally different approach and a different runtime to allow multiple languages to target the browser. And we've been seeing different languages target the browsers in all manner of different ways in the past, from the old plugin models to you'll find all kinds of creative transpilers and compilers that target JavaScript. But for various reasons, none of those are really practical routes to getting languages like C++ or or Rust into the browser. So WebAssembly was designed primarily with that in mind, allow other languages to target what is the most ubiquitous runtime on the planet, the, the browser. However, in order to release WebAssembly quickly, they had to come up with an MVP scope. And one of the things that they did in that MVP scope was, was think, okay, there are a significant number of large-scale C++ applications out there, games, uh, productivity tools. As an MVP scope, creating a WebAssembly runtime that allows you to compile those C++ applications and run them in the browser is actually a really good starting point. It gives us something really quite tangible for the first you know, public release of WebAssembly. So the first release of WebAssembly did have legacy migration at heart. And as a result, the team behind AutoCAD, which is a, a C++ application with, say, a 30-year heritage, they were able to take that code base and compile it to WebAssembly and run it within the browser. So there is a a significant part of WebAssembly is about legacy migration. However, since its release just a few years ago, there's been a, a widespread acknowledgement that WebAssembly is about a lot more than just migration of legacy code bases. I guess I could I could wax lyrical about all the sorts of things that it can do, but I'll I'll try to keep it brief because I could go on all day about it. But WebAssembly at its at its core is a simple, secure, sandboxed runtime, which makes sense in the browser, but it also makes sense for things like running smart contracts on the blockchain or or as a much more lightweight runtime for for serverless functions on the cloud. So yeah, whilst it's great for legacy migration, that is the tip of the iceberg of what WebAssembly can can achieve. That's great background there. Now, you know, when you think about what people what people should be doing with WebAssembly today, you know, when you think about finance and, and kind of where people are investing, do you see areas where it's the right time to pick up this tool set and start making some, some headway in it? I mean, I know it's a, a relatively new technology, but it's a powerful one. How should people so- start to dip their toes in the water here? This sort of thing is starting to emerge over time. One thing I want to say at the very beginning is personally, I don't see WebAssembly as a direct replacement for our classic kind of JavaScript or TypeScript React application. I think next year, the year after and years to come, we will still be creating our our sort of standard productivity applications with that technology stack because it's fundamentally a good fit. I know there there are others who, who have a slightly different belief. They believe that as the capability of WebAssembly increases as, as more APIs, as more features are added to it, 
you may start finding people creating front-end applications in, in Rust and so on. Personally, I don't think that's where it will really take off. In financial services world, we work in, with institutions who, they have a lot of code, which is sort of a glib comment. They have ridiculous <laughs> amounts of code of, of various heritages. And having the ability to, to have a piece of code written in, whether it's C++, Go, or whatever other language, and run it almost anywhere is incredibly powerful. So being able to have, I don't know, your pricing engine and running it in on a, a, a lightweight sort of container-style system on, on the cloud, whether that's public or private, super powerful. Being able to run that within the browser. Or if you're migrating an application and you've got a, a pre-existing, I don't know, quant library written in C++ or Python, being able to run that in the browser alongside your, your front-end code, it just removes a lot of the, the sort of language barriers that used to exist. So yeah, I think that I think there's a lot of potential. One one other thing I'll point out though is in the sort of medium term, I think we'll find ourselves using WebAssembly without even knowing it. In the near future, you won't find it unusual that you're writing some Rust code and and running it on the cloud, and you won't even realize that it's it's running within a WebAssembly runtime. And on the desktop, a lot of our tool chains at the moment are a little bit inefficient. They're written in JavaScript, or sometimes they have native modules, which are, you know, slightly not the best fit for things like NPM and so on. I think in the medium term, we will find a lot of the developer tooling will will be using WebAssembly under the hood. So I think we'll start using it without even realizing it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, on the OpenFit side of things, we're I think we're pretty excited about you know where the system interface is at and where that's headed. You can imagine on the client side, we're pretty excited about DOM access coming. What are some bits that are coming down the pipe in WASM land that people should keep an eye on from your perspective? Yeah, there are two different sides to that, I guess. There's the official WebAssembly specification, which is now under W3C. And I think some of the most interesting things that I'm seeing coming in that direction are things like threading support. So WebAssembly is geared towards having good predictable performance. Uh, So by predictable, I mean it doesn't have the same kind of performance issues that you have with garbage collected languages or, or very much with JavaScript where there's a multiple tiered optimization process, uh, whereas with WebAssembly, you get good performance immediately. So there's things like threading, which goes hand in hand with performance. It allows you to really get, get the most out of your high performance system. But also there's things like the interface types specification. And this will make it much easier in future to plug WebAssembly modules into other APIs. So WebAssembly at the moment has no built-in I.O. capabilities. WebAssembly cannot do anything without interacting with its host. And as a result, there are certain runtime inefficiencies, but there are also developer inefficiencies. Someone has to build those bindings, basically. So the interface types definition should make it much easier to plug your WebAssembly module into some external API, whether that's the DOM API or file system API. So that's probably one of the most exciting things going on in the official specification. But you mentioned things like file system access. That's a different body that are looking at that. That's WASI, the WebAssembly system interface. And they're looking at constructing, well, to take a step back, a number of early adopters of WebAssembly realized this is an amazing runtime. Let's Let's put it within the Ethereum blockchain, or let's let's run cloud functions using WebAssembly. So everyone was developing their own 
system interface. So WASI was basically a coming together of all these different sort of early adopters to say, let's define a standard that will will work regardless of your use case. That's going to make WebAssembly a much more powerful and versatile engine. I'm also thinking about WebAssembly in the context of, you know, Apple starting to fragment the desktop ecosystem a little bit with Apple Silicon coming Does WebAssembly and WASM, does it have a role in helping smooth out what people are doing as their targets kind of multiply? In the software world, we, you know, we we live live on abstractions. When you're running something in the cloud, it's running on many levels of virtualization and and abstraction. And WebAssembly is exactly the same. WebAssembly virtual machine is not something that runs on a chip. It is a virtual machine. It just happens to be quite a low level one. So it does provide an abstraction. You can change it doesn't matter what chipset your machine's running, your WebAssembly machine should run and execute in exactly the same fashion regardless. So yeah, I guess I guess it can help kind of smooth out any of the wrinkles there. We've started to see Apple throwing up some pull requests on the Chromium side of things, you know, trying to make sure that Apple Silicon lands nicely. I know dev kits are out there. Does it does it have its own instruction set then? Is it, is that what they're effectively doing, making sure that it they it, it accommodates some of the potential optimizations? Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, so full new silicone, its own instruction set. I'm not 100% sure if it's it, if it kind of comes out of the chips from the iPads and stuff, but I would imagine it does. Yeah. I, I must admit, every time I see chips getting faster, memory getting bigger, it doesn't make me happy. It, it, it kind of makes me sad. And I was, I was sort of wondering why. And then last weekend, I was I just listened to some sort of random talk. It was by a guy called Joe Armstrong, it was called, I think, The Mess That We're In. And he made an amazing observation. He said, you know, he started working on computers in the 60s or the 70s. And he said he looked at his MacBook. It's got 20,000 times more memory and, you know, 2,000 times more processor power. His first computer, it took 60 seconds to boot up. So by that reckoning, this one should boot in 60 milliseconds. And it kind of doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Things should be faster, which is why every time I see a faster chip or more memory, it kind of makes me sad because I know I know that we'll we'll fritter it away somehow. We we won't truly take advantage of it. Or or we might do in some edge case with games or whatever. But yeah, I just can't get excited about hardware for that reason. We never seem to make the most out of it. That's an incredible segue to the fun topic I had pegged for today, which was you're working on an Atari 2600 emulator, right? An assembly script? Yeah, yeah, that, that's one of my sort of many, many hobby projects. I guess, uh, similar to yourself, I'm a technologist at, at heart, very much so. But I don't know if you've got the same problem. Day to day, there's probably not much time to write code. But writing code and and staying close to what's happening is something that's very much dear to my heart. So I always have one or more slightly wacky hobby projects on, on the go. And and that particular one is I've I've been really wanting to have a go with this thing called assembly script. And assembly script is a, a newish language. It's basically a TypeScript subset which compiles to a WebAssembly. It's, it's, it could be an interesting gateway for JavaScript developers to use WebAssembly. And so I thought, you know, I want to build something with it. And I've always been fascinated by emulators. You know, I, I grew up on the sort of early 8-bit home computers, you know, played games on things like ZX Spectrum and so on. I do do like the nostalgia of those sorts of systems. 
what I quite like about them, again, getting back to my current issue with hardware is I, I like the fact that I had a BBC Micro and we had the schematic and I could open up the schematic and I could understand how it worked. I mean, can you remember the last time that you could actually really understand how a computer works almost in its entirety? It just, it just doesn't, you can't get your head around it anymore. So I've always had that kind of nostalgia thing for old computers and I'd been wanting to write an emulator for a long time. I picked the Atari 2600 because I'd read a book about it a while back called Racing the Beam. And what's particularly fascinating about the Atari 2600 is it had precious little memory. And typically the, the way that you render to screen is you have video RAM, you have memory which is mapped directly to the screen. You set, you set a byte there that dictates the color of a particular pixel, for example. The Atari 2600 didn't have enough memory to have video RAM. So what happened was the developers would update registers which would change the color as, as the cathode ray tube, the, the TV, scanned from line to line, which is a fascinating idea. And it, it, I, I can't imagine what it's like to actually have to performance optimize and create games on that system. So for me, it was part nostalgia trip, part sort of fun exploration of how the 2600 actually works. When you dig into those things to kind of witness and see the creativity, you know, sort of firsthand from a code perspective, right? Seeing what they actually had to do to get these, you know, these experiences in front of people, it always amazes me. One of my favorite memories as a child with a 2600 was playing Adventure, right? Where you're, you know, yeah. your character is literally just a little dot. That game had, I guess, maybe the, the early most popular Easter egg in it. Uh, one of the game designers had put his name in a secret spot you get a real sense of the kind of engineering that needed to happen. And the again, that, that creativity is often kind of lacking from what we're doing now, just because you know, we're bringing so much kit to the party that you can actually be quite sloppy and the end result isn't, yeah. isn't that bad. <laughs> it's true in software engineering. It's true in so many other fields that a great way to unlock creativity is to enforce constraints. Because with the processor power with the internet, with the browsers, we, we've got life is a little bit too easy. Impose constraints, creativity is a must if you want to actually construct anything. So yeah, I, I do enjoy working working with constraints and being bound by constraints. It's it's a lot of fun. Before we head out, Colin, are there are there any things that you see in the near term horizon that you're going to be investing your time in? I mean, clearly you're not going to walk away from the, the Atari 2600 emulator before I get to play Adventure on it again. But, you know, things that are interesting for you or for Scott Logic or, or trends you're seeing across the industry? Yeah, sure. And I guess with, with WebAssembly, one, one thing to point out is that it started for me very much as a sort of personal interest side project, something that I found quite exciting. I am really excited about seeing how WebAssembly really does have the potential to meet the mainstream. I do think in the near future, my kind of personal hobby and day job will collide, which will be quite wonderful. Outside of that, within within Scott Logic in in general, I guess, well I'm gonna be terribly mundane, I'm afraid, having talked about WebAssembly initially. Uh, getting back to financial services and and the comments I made earlier about all the code that they have kicking around and the, the kind of legacy attached to that. We know that that's held them back on on the desktop. However, another area where that's really held them back is adoption of the cloud. A any other industry, or if you go into any other, it, it, you talk to a startup, 
the cloud is the de facto choice in the same way that uh, the browser is the de facto for client-facing applications. And we are seeing a significant shift now within the financial services community. They, they are, it feels like we're hitting critical mass and, and cloud is very much a hot topic at the moment. It, it, the rate of adoption is increasing considerably. And, and from my perspective, that's, that's fantastic. You, you obviously get part of it is, is the economics and the potential cost saving. But for me, again, the technologist, the, the greatest thing about the cloud is the speed and ease of access to novel and interesting and different technologies. You know, you can stand up a different database in the click of a button. So if you want to experiment with different types of databases, they're there, they're, they're in front of you, you can experiment with them. Prior to the cloud, you just simply couldn't experiment. It, it was so time consuming to provision and set up and you know talk commercials with, with the pot- potential database vendors. So it might feel a bit like I'm um, taking a five year step back, but I do think cloud is, is something that we're really only just starting to see the, the financial services community really start to grasp and unlock the potential. I couldn't agree more that the inflection point on cloud for meaningful use cases in finance, it is taking a step backward five years. You know, when you look at what the consumer space is doing, finance has always been a little bit more careful. And it takes a little bit longer, you know, when you've got so much regulation and compliance wrapped up around what you're doing, you've got to be really sure about how you're going to use something and how you're going to migrate to it. But we've definitely seen the same thing, which is that although people have been investing in the cloud, you know, use has been low. Yeah. for meaningful use cases. But we definitely see that changing. You know, through this budget cycle, this fall that people are planning, it does look like 2021 is where, you know, finance is going to get that rocket fuel of the cloud starting to hit. We couldn't be more excited about it. And I'm sure from your perspective, that means that it's just going to become so much more powerful to be able to deliver, you know, faster, tighter iterations and not have to rebuild as much existing tech as we've had to in these on-prem worlds. Further reinforcing your point about it being an inflection point, for, for me, it's an, you've met that inflection point when if you say, let's build on the cloud, the response is not why, it's yeah, why not? That you know you've won when, when it becomes kind of the, the de facto. Great. Well, Colin, thank you so much for joining me today. This was a great catch up. Cool. Yeah, very much enjoyed it. So I hope you found that as informative as I did. I would like to thank Colin for joining us and you for listening. Join us next time as we speak with innovators and thought leaders in finance and technology on the OpenFin MVP podcast. <laughs>